0: You might think when you hear the story of a Jim Crow asylum that everyone there must have fit the image. But often, many of the people brought to Crownsville were Black Americans who had excelled in their fields, who had reached the highest heights, who had worked so hard to defy people's expectations. Just the fight to be seen, to be heard, to make it, it can be enough to really hurt people.
1: Hello, and welcome to Hope Starts With Us, a podcast by NAMI, the National Alliance on Mental Illness. I'm Gino Pitchford. I was NAMI's original manager of Black Community Engagement and now manager of HBCU Engagement. Today, I'm serving as your guest host for a special Black History Month episode about the legacy of slavery and segregation in mental health care. We started this podcast because we believe that hope starts with us. Hope starts with us talking about mental health. Hope starts with us making information accessible. Hope starts with us providing resources and practical advice. Hope starts with us sharing our stories. Hope starts with us breaking the stigma. If you or a loved one is struggling with mental health condition and have been looking for hope, we made this podcast for you. I am just deeply honored today to introduce our guest, Peabody and two-time Emmy Award winner, journalist Antonia Hilton. Antonia graduated magna cum laude from Harvard University in 2015, where she received prizes for her writing and investigative research on race, mass incarceration, and the history of psychiatry. Since then, she's won numerous awards for her work as a writer, correspondent, and producer. And she just recently released a new book titled Madness, Race and Insanity in a Jim Crow asylum, which we will talk a lot about today. Antonia, thank you so much for taking the time to join us today on our podcast.
0: Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. I just need to, as a a Black man and also a person who has lived most of my adult life with a mental health diagnosis, severe depression, uh, for 30-plus years now,
1: I need to, one, congratulate you on your book, as many have, but I also need to thank you and let you know how deeply I personally appreciate you bringing this story out for uh, myself and others who look like us, who don't always get to see ourselves in this space. It is an amazing thing.
0: Thank you. I'm, I'm honored to be in conversation with you and your team. I deeply admire what you do, how you serve communities, and and destigmatize these conversations. I'm so grateful to hear from people like you who feel like they can see themselves in this book because that's why I wrote it.
1: Kind of touched on that but if you will for our folks who've not read the book or those that even haven't heard about it yet could you just give us kind of an overview of, of what the book is about where it came from
0: madness tells the century-long history of a hospital in maryland called crownsville crownsville was created in 1911 as the state's jim crow asylum the only institution in the state of maryland willing for decades To treat Black people who were suffering with any kind of mental health diagnosis, any kind of developmental or cognitive difference. I mean, even children who had simply just been abandoned or or left without family and community support landed uh, at a place like this. And Crownsville was one of many of these segregated institutions around the country. But so often what you find is that the records, the buildings that once housed Black people in these mental health uh, institutions, in these structures that people rarely care to dignify our existences by carefully preserving those records, putting them into museums. Many of them have been turned into theme parks and haunted houses, uh, an institution that my own great-grandfather spent time in has been turned into a sort of Halloween ride and tourist trap. I tell the story of Crownsville because it is this incredibly important window, I think, really into the American psyche, but from the Black patient's perspective. And so you begin in 1911 with the hospital's founding and you know the decades, the years right after emancipation, but the hospital didn't close until 2004. And so it really takes you through the entire 20th century. And through that, you can see the way that our country has really struggled to live up to its promises, the way in which Black Americans have been fighting for freedom and civil rights, just their understanding and acceptance in broader American society. And I think mental health is such an important window into these conversations. And what I found in the records and in the 10 years of oral history that I've done to bring this book to life is that I found this really deeply American story, one that Black people, Black patients played such an important role in, but they haven't really received credit for. Often in schools, when people teach about the history of psychiatry, it's almost entirely from the perspective of white doctors and white patients, and madness seeks to change that. Wow.
1: <laughs> yeah, wow. And uh, the notes say that you took some 10 years from inception to when you got to it. But the other thing I want to add to this question, you did not have to do this. For a lot of us in the community, we like, whoa, you winning. You're doing big things. Why take this risk? that either side might not have been real happy about? What, what made you feel like you had to do
0: it? Well, I think our community really needs to have this conversation. And actually, I don't just think that, I know it. I see it in the data, I hear from doctors, therapists who work with black children and families all around our country, and they feel that there's a crisis. And that crisis has come to my own family's front door. To be totally honest with you, it's always been personal. Not only because I came from a family where I knew the stories of my great grandfather, who I mentioned spent time in an institution, and other loved ones who struggled with depression, schizophrenia, alcoholism, and who struggled to get real care in our country's healthcare system, but several years ago, while I was still just in the research phase and all of this work for for this book, an immediate family member of mine started to experience a, a psychiatric crisis. They desperately needed help, and my family. You know, we thought we had all the tools. Okay, we have good insurance. All right, we're a big family. We got lots of people who can get on the phone and we can call one place after the other, one program after the other. And wow, we didn't understand how hard it was out there, especially if you're Black, to find a doctor who looks like you, who understands the community that you come from. You know, my my loved one was experiencing, you know, hallucinations, delusions that they were being hunted by a white supremacist organization. And they would tell us when they would go into some of these state-of-the-art facilities or they would go to emergency rooms and try to talk to psychiatrists, they would tell us that white psychiatrists had no interest in what was behind that fear, what was motivating those concerns. And they felt really discarded, disrespected, unwanted, and All of those emotions just exacerbated their ability to get connected to real care and to get stabilized. And so my family really had to launch this sort of private and personal effort to wrap our arms around this loved one. And at the same time I was reporting out this book and I was reading the stories of black patients and families that had gone through this very same things in 1911, in 1920, 1930, 40, 50, and so on. And so I really was starting to see the patterns In such a personal way. And it's one of the reasons why I take the book through the full history. You know, I chose not to just focus on, okay, what was it like there in the 50s and 60s? But I wanted you to see the full picture because I believe we can't understand why our system works this way right now, why so many people of color feel alienated from our mental health systems right now, if we don't look to the past. And to understand the past, you need to understand every era that comes before it because. None of these things have been developed in a vacuum. Everything builds upon what came right before it. And so to see those connections from 1911 to what my family was experiencing in the present day, it really changed me and it kind of put a fire underneath me. Like I started to see just how urgent this work was. And I really started to suspect there must be other families like mine who are struggling, who are wondering why does it have to be this way and who maybe wanna have this conversation with me. Count my family among those, yes. So you, you alluded to the the history of our struggle as, as a
1: people, but the next thing on my list here is to talk through the, the history of the institution. I know that you went way back to the inception, so walk us through a little bit of that as, as you touch on it in the book and the various eras, if you Oh, will. yeah.
0: Well, the origin story of Crownsville is an unbelievable one, but also a very American story. Crownsville is created in 1911, but it Comes on the heels of years of officials, white doctors, and politicians in Maryland and around the United States debating with each other their theories of the minds and bodies of black people. Their different observations about black communities in the years after uh, they've received their freedom, and they have this theory: many of them that one of the reasons black communities are struggling and, and so many black people seem to be suffering mentally is that they simply can't handle freedom. They can't handle the rigors of of day-to-day life, you know, and and in some ways the good old days, that, that was what was natural. That was what was good for their health. There's a real argument in medical journals, in the work of doctors to try to make sense of and make right the antebellum social order. And that is a thing that continues to linger in the discourse, linger in medical attitudes all the way into the 20th century. And so they are writing all about how they're seeing black people suffer after the years of emancipation. They don't want to bring them into the hospitals that already exist for the treatment of white patients. And so then they do something really strange in Maryland. They decide, okay, we're going to make ourselves a segregated hospital for black people, but they don't want to really pay for it. So they march black patients into the woods and they force those patients to begin the backbreaking work of building this hospital from the ground up themselves. So the very first 12 patients who arrived to Crownsville, well, there really was no Crownsville at all. They were in the middle of the woods and they had to clear the forest. They had to harvest uh, willow and tobacco and construct roads and move railways and, and a foundation. And eventually over three seasons as more and more patients start to arrive, they erect a network of these massive buildings, many of which still stand to this day in Anne Arundel County, Maryland. Immediately, that origin story, I think it raises so many questions. Right. How can patients be so unwell, so unwanted and so rejected by society that they need to come to a place like Crownsville, but so healthy that they could be subjected to 12 hours of backbreaking work, um, building facilities that have such good bones, they, they can stand more than a century later what I immediately understood is that this was a project that would not just be about the stories and the experiences of the patients at Crownsville and the people who treated them, but also about how our country has come to decide who is a patient, who is deserving of care, how do we create and come up with these different diagnostic tools and categories, and and how does race impact the way people are diagnosed and treated by doctors? And so it, it begins like a plantation, the recreation of this sort of old antebellum structure. And for the first several decades, patients are put to work almost constantly in the fields, in the kitchen, in the morgue. They're rented out to local private businesses for free, not unlike some of the prison labor that we see people, um, you know, forced to do now. There are all these parallels uh, throughout the hospital's history like that. But even after that kind of, you know, sort of egregious labor begins to slow down and and dissipate. The hospital continues to struggle because the state of Maryland really never wants to fund Crownsville to the same extent and in the same way that they're willing to support the peer white majority institutions. And integration arrives, and Black men and women get their foot in the door for the first time after being barred from treating their own community at this hospital. And they start to make changes, but those changes are often with their own resources, their own love, their own care, They're sewing things back at home to bring for their patients. They're giving patients that they love a little bit of extra food and support. They're washing their hair for patients who, in some cases, not been bathed for months or years by white staff members who hadn't cared to truly take care of them. And they're doing all this in the face of continued discrimination and struggle. And just at the moment, you know, towards the 60s, 70s and 80s, when they're starting to make these professional changes and patients are really starting to recover or to really get into therapy. That's the exact moment when our country kind of starts to give up on this idea of community mental health in the first place. And so the asylums start losing money and many of them are closing down. Patients are told to go back to communities. But for some patients, often patients who come from lower income backgrounds or communities of color. There isn't a whole lot of community and and clinic for them to go back to. And so you see all of these social changes and institutional changes in America, but really, you know, through the eyes of Black people, Black patients first. And the hospital takes you all the way to 2004 when it closed and the way in which the Black doctors and nurses there really fought and they scrapped to try to keep their patients cared for, the history of this hospital alive, Still, even then, in the face of just so much indifference, frankly, to what they were all trying to do, trying to accomplish, and hoping for for their patients. And, you know, I'll say it, it's a story that, that brings you through really hard times. But one of my favorite parts of, of doing this work was getting to know that community that came into this place. These nurses and doctors who decided to do everything they could to save lives every day, to just love on the patients who they could really reach and who were in front of them who showed up even in in the face of sometimes structural horror and those people are heroes and many of their stories will will really lift readers back up because they're still alive in some cases and well into their nineties. And, you know, my hope is that they get their flowers, that recognition and and thanks that for so long the the state of Maryland and our, our federal government just failed to give them.
1: It is not easy to stand at this intersection between blackness and wellness. Our tradition in this country teaches us not to talk about those things because more often than not, they were used against us. So the question I asked you at the beginning of why would you take this risk when you're winning? And you answered it beautifully. I commend you for your bravery and, and your courage to to make a book like this.
0: Learning this history gave me so much more patience, grace and, and empathy for some of my you know elders in my family who used to tell me, We just pray about it on Sunday and we don't talk about that. Or, you know, they would hide photographs of family members who had struggled mentally and for whom there was a lot of shame and embarrassment in the family and they didn't know what to do and how to talk about it. And that used to make me angry, if I'm being honest with you, when I was a kid and I'd try to talk to them and I felt like, why are they so old school? Why are they acting like this? This is exhausting. You know, as a young person, you you feel like you're battling your own family. But then when I got to see this history and I started to see what my elders knew, the rumors they had heard, what they had read in the papers, you know, it started to make sense to me. In a way, they were trying to protect me, keep me from a system that they thought, well, you, you wouldn't be safe there. It wasn't made for you. And that is some of what you see here, is that these systems weren't made with us and our humanity in mind. It's hard to face that, but I also think once you see what went wrong? You can see actually how we could chart a better path forward. Part of that personal work, right, is just letting go of the anger or the resentment that I felt toward people who, who I thought, you know, oh, they should have known better or they should have given me more support here. You see that they're part of a pattern. They 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 only knew what they could know and see what they could see. And there are stories at Crownsville that sound like old wives' tales that sound like something. That would be a, a scary story that you'd tell a kid before they, they go to sleep at night.
1: Would you give us just one of those, maybe?
0: Well, I uh, tell the story of one patient, a man named Mr. Bell, who was at Crownsville in the 50s, and he'd been there for years and years. And one of the first black nurses, a woman who's still alive named Marie Goff, comes to work at Crownsville, and she meets this man, and she finds out he hasn't seen the sun or been allowed outdoors in years. She does some research to find out, well, what's going on with Mr. Bell? And she finds out that her white supervisor, along with authorities in Baltimore, had scooped him up off the street one night because they overheard him speaking in a British accent, and they didn't believe there could be any Black people who had British accents. So he's sent to Crownsville, an asylum, because people assume he's crazy and just making it up. But this young Black woman, she's just in her 20s, She starts doing some research and finds out that he was born in London and had been a jockey who came to the United States and fell on some hard times. But his life kind of gets sucked away, pulled away by this institution because white people see him and they just he doesn't fit the box they they wanted to put him in. He doesn't act the way they imagine black people should act. There's another patient who was sent to Crownsville for years for the crime of, of cutting off a white person in traffic in Maryland. You have to laugh sometimes to keep from crying because, you know, the story of three civil rights protesters all the way in the 60s sent to Crownsville for trying to eat at a white owned establishment, for sitting down at a counter and expecting to be served at a, at a restaurant owned by a white family. They are arrested and then labeled as insane by the judge and sent to Crownsville. And, you know, so this is an institution, right, where there are people there who have True mental health diagnoses, who who have come to the hospital expecting, hoping, seeking uh, medical care. But then there's a whole population of Black patients there who are just Black people who didn't seem to fit the status quo, who didn't seem to follow the rules that were set for them by a society that didn't really see them or respect them. And I think that tells you a lot about the way in which sometimes the categories that we tell ourselves are real the people who are healthy, the people who are unhealthy people who are crazy versus the people who are, are well, that these are not real categories. The goalposts have moved and often our understanding of people's race, gender, culture, they play a role in how we make decisions about the people around us. You know, that was really important for me to see up close in the work and it changed the way I see my own family and it changed the way I see every person in my life. Honestly, my hope is that seeing this will change readers and inspire them to be a little bit kinder, a little bit more supportive of the people in our communities all around this country that are suffering right now.
1: Appreciate that. As, as you allude to people suffering around the country, I know that you're a Harvard alone, and I know that there were some trials and tribulations at Harvard not too long ago with one of our folks and then Lincoln University lost one of their great leaders not too long ago to mental health concerns. And I'm just wondering, is, is that something that you track, being a subject matter expert of sorts in, in those kinds of spaces? Is, is this something you see as a trend, per se, or were these just outliers?
0: I don't think they were outliers necessarily. And particularly, I think, especially the Lincoln University case, it's one of the things I explore in the book, too, historically in the records, in the testimony, from families connected to Crownsville, you might think when you hear the story of a Jim Crow asylum that this is a stereotypical one-note place that everyone there must have fit the image you have of of Bedlam or these sort of old-school asylums, and certainly there's part of the story that can fit that kind of horror. But often you would find in the records and in the stories that many of the people brought to Crownsville were Black Americans who had excelled in their fields, who had reached the highest heights, who had worked so hard to defy people's expectations. And it's one of the reasons I I start the book actually in chapter one with the story of Polly Murray's father, a celebrated educator, principal, who dedicated his entire life, who worked hours upon hours to serve Black children at a time when Black children were seen as not being deserving of going to the best schools, as as not really being expected to make much of themselves. And he was obsessed with the opposite, the idea that he could prove Baltimore, he could prove our society wrong by bringing up a generation of Black children and Black scholars who you know, would change the world. And that work, in some ways, brings him to his knees. He is exhausted by it. He's raising six children while working as a widower, and he, and he can't do it at a certain point. And he lands at a place like Crownsville. And this is someone who has accomplished so much in their field, who had gone to an amazing HBCU. I mean, not the type of person who you might imagine would be a patient at a place like this. But actually, that was very common. Of course, you know, people who came from some of the poorest communities in Maryland were suffering, too. But that even Black Americans who had tried to succeed... Would, would kind of bump up against these ceilings and be kind of pushed back down. And that often that created a mental health crisis of its own. And, and that's something I think the Black community needs to talk about, that providers need to keep an eye out for, that people need to care about and support. Just the fight to be seen, to be heard, to, to make it, it can be enough to really, to, to really hurt people. The fight in its own, um, it can exhaust you. And that's something that I found was a pattern throughout this book. And I think it's reflected in, in those examples you laid out.
1: Another question in, in my doing my homework. So I'd be ready to talk to you when you got on here. I found out that they uh, have now made a decree, if I'm not wrong, to do something new with that space. Now, would you be kind enough to share with us? Because I, I am about an hour below D.C. in Virginia. There's literally a plantation 50 yards to my right right now um, where my house is probably with slave quarters back when I'm planning a road trip. I'm I'm planning to get to Anne Arundel as soon as time and space allow just to see where this place was. Can you tell us what's happening there? Oh
0: yeah. Well, first, let me tell you, if you're interested in seeing the hospital, you should try to plan a trip you or, or anyone else who's listening For April 27th this year, 2024, April 27th is a Saturday at 10 a.m. on the hospital grounds, the county will allow people in to go to a public ceremony at the hospital cemetery to pay respects to the patients who lived and died there. I will be there. Other community historians, uh, former patients and employees will be there to be in community with each other, to grieve together to share the names of patients who were at Crownsville and I've been to this ceremony in the past and it's really it's a beautiful very moving experience and the land is for all of the the difficulty there it is beautiful I mean it was 1500 acres this was a huge modern highly productive farm run by its own patients for so long and and you see that in the land and so If you have the time to visit, you should absolutely come out April 27th, 10 a.m., Crownsville in Anne Arundel County. But that land, everything I just told you about, is going to, in the next few years, be turned into a memorial park and a museum by the county. Their goal is to preserve several of the buildings, tell the history and the story of what happened there, but also to create bike paths and potential programming housing for veterans and houseless people to come up with all kinds of after-school opportunities for kids that one idea is to create a therapy horse farm for children to come and relax and play. And the goal is that every organization that will get an opportunity to either for very little rent a space there or to run programming on the land, that they'll make it very affordable and accessible. This is supposed to be a space that is going to be, you know, really equal opportunity for every type of person in the area. You know, it's it, it'll be interesting to see now to what extent does the county really live up to its promises? Do they get this done? Do they keep the community, uh, the Black community that surrounds this place? Are their voices heard? Are they at the center of all this? Um, and so I'll certainly be keeping an eye on all of that. But the moment to come see the hospital as it is now, before those big changes come, that's going to be April 27th.
1: I, you know, hopefully I can bring a bunch of NAMI folks. And if not, it'll be little me on my own damn getting up the road, man. But this is uh, too important to miss. The next thing in my notes was, was about what can be done right now today for advocates and, and folks that, that care about black and brown bodies to make change, bring about change, move things forward. You talked about what Maryland hopefully is going to do. Uh, but what can you tell folks that, in terms of moving this conversation along and being involved.
0: You know, there are a few steps and and I always, when I speak about what I think could come next and what people can do, I tell people what I have been told by the experts, the black doctors and nurses that I've gotten to know over the last 10 years. And everything that they've told me, it's not rocket science. Much of it, we could all start implementing in our personal lives or advocating for tomorrow. So here are a few things uh, that they tell me. The first is, you know, if you're thinking about your own community and, and actionable steps you could take, you could take a look at the policy perspectives and ideas of your local leadership all the way up to national leadership and see, do they fund and do they care about mental health programming? Do they care about Americans needing access to affordable housing? Do they care about parks and good schools? Because these are more than just you know nice looking public spaces; they're actually public goods that help insulate, support, uh, protect children and families from ever developing these challenges uh, in the first place. And so, actually being someone who stands up for libraries and schools and parks that makes a difference. If you are an educator and you have the opportunity to mentor. Uh, People of color who are interested in pursuing this field as psychiatrists or therapists and and doctors of really any kind, offering them professional support and mentorship, helping them get into these difficult and often very competitive programs uh, so that we can change the number of people who are, are in this field. Often there are communities in this country where people can't find a single provider of color. You know, the numbers are in the single digits and that to many people, to experts, they believe would make a huge change. On the personal level, if you have kids and people in your family who could use some support, some additional you know, trusted friends, advisors, mentors, become that kind of person. Be someone your niece and nephew can trust and call if they are struggling. If they're not sure they can talk to their parents about it, try to be the person that they would call if they needed something. It may sound like a small or silly ask, but many children report actually feeling very lonely right now after the pandemic, feeling isolated, like all they have is their phone, their school, and their house. And they need more places to go and more people that they can lean on. And so if you can be that person and then advocate for those things at the community level, right there is is your opportunity for change. But also just knowing your history. I mean, when you look at the sort of system we've built now, where we have so many people struggling out on our streets. We have too few beds available for people who need treatment. People are stuck on long waiting lists. There may be people who try to tell you this is just the way it is and and always has been in this country, but these are actually choices that we've made as a society. There are other ideas, and there is a huge network, uh, as I know your team knows, uh, of people who are trying to shout from the rooftops all the ideas that they have. So listen to those people. Uh, boost them and, you know, consider supporting them when they run for office or they uh, come with proposals because they they just might be the the path forward, the new future. I think so many of us, not just in the Black community, in every community, uh, so many of us deserve something better. We deserve better care. We all know coming out of the pandemic that something is a bit broken right now. You know, the, the opportunity to fix it is there.
1: Yeah. I, I wish I, I could copy that soundbite and take that with me everywhere I go. Like when people are like, what can I do? Here you go. You can do this. I have just one other question that's mine. It's not in my notes about the book specifically. The title. You could have called this book anything. It's your book. And when I was a musician and I would have a body of songs I put together back and then we called them albums. I don't know how the kids do stuff now, but You'd make an album, and you'd have this collection of stuff, and then you would sit and think about what is the title that's going to sum up all of this if someone's walking past. We used to have record stores back in the day, so if somebody's walking through the store and they see it, how did you arrive at that title of all the things you could have called this book? How did that happen?
0: It felt right to me. And I think anyone who gets even just a couple chapters into this book will understand that madness is not a label for the patients. It's not about their medical diagnoses or their experiences and who they are, but it's about the system that we've built. It's about this country. It's about the ways in which this country has kind of struggled routinely to be honest with itself about what and who it is. And you see that through the story of Crownsville. I also think that it was the right title because there are some chapters that are going to make you mad. (laughs) You will finish that chapter. I've received emails from readers who are like, I I have been screaming since I finished chapter three, you know, and I get it. Um, and I understand, uh, there are the chapters too that are going to lift you back up and make you believe in your neighbor and believe in your friend and your family more than you have before. But some parts of this book are going to make you mad. And I wanted people to know that this was not just the story of one institution, one place, or, one group of people but it's a, a very shared story that we're all implicated in we're all a part of and it should it should make you a little mad you know
1: when i first read the title that that's what i took was okay she's talking about the whole system is utter madness like i, I never thought it meant the patience but i just i want to go through yeah, this course and, and hear you say it for everybody to hear now, we, we are, are reaching this point where this is the section that they call hold on to hope. The world can be a difficult place, and sometimes it can be hard to hold on to hope. That's why each week we dedicate the last couple of minutes of our podcast to a special section called hold on to hope. So, Antonia, can you tell us what helps you to hold on to hope?
0: Well, I am very lucky to come from a big family, and I have six siblings. I got 20-something cousins. And when I am down, I call people and I tell them I'm down. Uh, When I need to visit someone and to make sure I'm not alone one weekend, I go find my sister and I crash in her apartment, you know? I, I raise my hand and I reach out and make sure that I'm around people who lift me up. I also box. So anytime I, I need that release, uh, I need some new energy kind of flowing through me. I go to a black owned boxing gym here in New York called Originé, and I go, I go mad. <laughs> That's what I do. Um, and it really helps me uh, process my week. It's a physical form of therapy. I do therapy too, and I love my therapist, but I need that physical therapy as well to really get the job done. You need that, you, you, know, you have to move it through your body. And I have a sister who, boxing's not her thing, so, you know, she lifts weights, she goes on hour, two hour long walks, whatever it is for you, getting your body moving can be such wonderful therapy, and then I love food, so whether that's cooking food, or just finding a great place to eat some new food, (laughs) um, that is for me. Uh, that's something that brings me comfort, that introduces me to new people, cultures, places, that reminds me there's so much going on in the world and so much to make and create and try. It's the people, it's the experiences, it's the textures and the tastes and the feelings and the movement that, that keeps me hopeful all the time.
1: Amazing, amazing. I've been a Vice fan for a long time. Some shows that go way back, they, they kind of glossed over it in, in your intro. But I know you you had a journey. I told one of the producers, I'm like, I'm, I'm going to ask her about it because it's important. The Emmy that you won with Vice for that piece about the border and the separation of the folk. I went and watched it. That's amazing. Can you just say the title for, for the people out there so they can go find and have other contacts for who you are that you not just this book. Oh
0: my gosh. I mean, I got a couple things. things. If, if that's the the part of the podcast, yeah, run it. On. um, you know, in addition to madness, um, uh that's the, the, the story you're referencing is a story. I think it's still available online for free on YouTube. It tells the story of a family separated at the US Mexico border. If you type in family separation vice on, on YouTube, you will find it um, for free. I also host podcasts myself um, one called South Lake, one called Grapevine that talk about um, the attacks on public education that are going on right now in America. And it connects to this because it, it, I explore it with my co host. Uh, in both of those seasons, the way that those those fights, those battles, are really impacting children's mental health and the way they see themselves in the world. Um, and so, if you care about children and and uh, mental well being, uh, those are those are great stories to engage with too.
1: I think I've asked as much of, of my personal stuff as I'm allowed to do on here, but but I want to just um, open it up to you. We got the plugs and and the things that you're doing, but. Is there a last message you'd like to share with us before I let you get back to all the wonderful things you do?
0: I think the last message that I'll share is this. There are a lot of people in our world, in our country, who want us to believe that there's very little we can do about the mental health crisis, that we can throw our hands up, that there's always going to be mass shootings in public, that there's always going to be so many kids suffering in, in underfunded schools, that there's... Uh, You know, just always going to be a large number of Americans who have nowhere to live. But the truth is what the reporting tells us, the research tells us, the stories uh, over the decades tell us is that these are choices that we've made. And the the good news is choices can be changed. Choices can be undone, unraveled. There are other paths forward. Um, And so if you're fired up or you have a connection to this crisis, you have a loved one who's struggled um, just know that you're not alone. There are so many families living and generations before us that have been through these fights as well. This moment, as people try to destigmatize these discussions and imagine something better, um, they're ready to have a conversation. They're ready for something new. And, and I think we just need to find each other.
1: That's amazing. You're absolutely, I just, um, again, humbled to share space with you to have this conversation with you. You're doing amazing things. I wish you, all the best and and most success with this book. I often say in my work that that America has these waves of consciousness, you know, historically about 30 years or so apart, we start to get what the kids will call woke for a second. And we do these things. And then something else happens in the world. A war breaks out somewhere or there's some event and we change the channel and we move away from those things and we go back to kind of business as usual. So we're we're having one of these waves, but this wave is starting to roll back away from us. Now, post-COVID, post-George Floyd. And I've talked to people about the importance of leaving things in the wake. When that wave rolls back out, what is left on the beach? We need to create things. We need to put things in place that will still be there when that wave goes away. So this book is one of those things, and that's why I'm, having this energy that I'm having with you is because I see what thank you're doing you. and I see what you're leaving behind for us is, is a legacy. I'm going to try to read this, this, this last little bit of closing information, but thank you again so much for joining us. And hopefully I will see you in Maryland in April. <laughs> and <laughs> uh, and uh, once again for everyone, Antonia Hilton. This has been Hope Starts With Us, a podcast by NAMI, the National Alliance on Mental Illness. If you are looking for mental health resources, you are not alone. To connect with the NAMI helpline and find local resources, visit nami.org forward slash help, text helpline to 62640 or dial 800-950-NAMI. NAMI is 6264 on your keypad. To learn more about NAMI's initiative for mental wellness by Black people for Black people, visit NAMI.org forward slash sharing hope. To book Antonia Hilton for a speaking engagement or learn more about her new book, visit AntoniaHilton.com. Or if you are experiencing an immediate suicide, substance use, or mental health crisis, Please call or text 988 to speak with a trained support specialist or visit 988lifeline.org. Thank you for listening and be well.